Welcome to Joppa Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Joffy. Welcome to our new series, After the Plague. Nigel Savage in conversation with new guests each week discussing the state of the world and the global Jewish community in a post-COVID-19 world. You'll hear an inside account of how each of our guests is experiencing the lockdown, as well as timely conversations for a changing world. So grab a cup of tea or head out for a walk and join us as we talk about everything from favorite ice cream flavors to the international response to climate change. This series is sponsored by Sound the Call. More than 1,000 people logged on to Sound the Call at Hazon's 50th Earth Day event. This is a call to action, a call to change our behaviors, to think more equitably, to live more sustainably, to act more compassionately, to share the bounty of our planet with all who inhabit it, and to protect our Earth from those who do it harm. Learn how you can get involved at hazon.org slash sound the call. This week, we'll join Nigel Savage in conversation with Rabbi Susan Silverman and Yossi Abramovitz. Yossi and Susan, thank you for joining us. Um, first of all, just tell us a little bit like, how are you, where are you, and how is your Pesach? Uh, how are we? We're, we're hanging in. Um, mostly, you know, we're um, very, as I hope, everybody here uh, is very blessed in this, even amidst this coronavirus. Uh, you know, uh, it's a hard place for a lot of people right now. And, uh, but we are okay, we're at home. Uh, we've got three of our kids at home with us and they're in like pretty decent spirits considering. It's basically a five-star quarantine. Uh, it's spring is in the air in Jerusalem. Uh, I planted a vegetable garden on our porch uh, when this thing started. So uh, we're not exactly at a community level uh, to be one of Chazon's sites, but it felt like a natural reaction to what was going on. And did you do the, the thing of, of doing Manish Tana on the Mir Pesat? Did, did you do yeah. that? How was that? It echoed all, all between the buildings here in Baca. It was really beautiful, really beautiful. Yeah. Was it? Was it, I didn't even know. Was everybody doing it at the same time, or everybody at different times? Like, what happened? It, some of it was synchronized, and some of it was not. And some people, I think, then went into the streets to do it again because it, it was just so cool. Good. So I want to, um, first of all, I didn't say before, but I, I want to say also a warm welcome to everybody who is joining us. Uh, on Zoom or on Facebook Live. Chazan um, is a Jewish lab for sustainability. And at some level, we're interested in bringing new vision to the world to create a healthier and a more sustainable Jewish community and a healthier and a more sustainable world for everybody. And so this is a slightly crazy moment because it, it, really, um, it really struck me very forcefully that just as in a human body, when we get sick, it's a way of telling us to slow down. In a way, the whole planet got sick, and the whole planet right now is slowing down. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I'm just interested to hear from each of you. First of all, just a couple of sentences about what you've each been doing, your main projects in the recent period. But then in a sense, to go on from that, of like, what are we, what are we learning from this so far? Susan, Yossi? Learning from this. So, uh, 
so I um, I founded an organization called Second Nurture. Every child deserves a family and a community. And um, so what we do is we partner with synagogues in LA County to help them to prioritize uh, foster care and adoption among their membership, and then to gather the people who are interested in fostering, adopting into cohorts and then create a support system for those families from within the community. So we started with Wilshire Boulevard Temple and we have a cohort there of now of about 16 families. Uh, I think about a, uh, 11 or 12 of them have kids home from foster care now and about half of those have um, have completed adoptions of their kids from foster care and the and the community is really stepping forth in lots of really great ways to support these families and then just before this whole thing hit uh we we made a partnership with eight more synagogues in la county so we're really trying to create this community model that enables people to move forward and foster and adopt uh, a lot of people are really interested in doing that and they see the need for it and i think with the coronavirus and quarantine, we felt this, like personally, we felt this sort of isolation and vulnerability and dependence on something we can't control. And I think that's what kids in foster care are feeling all the time. And so how do we create a path for people to have the confidence to, to know that their community's got their back and to move forward and, and give families to these kids and, you know, all of our partner synagogues are doing such incredible work in terms of they're in LA County. So a lot of homelessness work, a lot of trafficking work and, uh, and uh, um, prison reform. And the foster system is the number one feeder into all of these things, into homelessness, into, uh, into trafficking and into, into prisons. And so how do we stem the tide of, of young people going into these, you know, really difficult, bad situations. And that's by providing families. And so that's what I've been doing. And uh, during quarantine, we've actually just really, uh, my team and I have like taken the time to just do all the stuff that we haven't had time to do, you know, to create all of the systems that we've, we've been doing more ad hoc to really kind of formalize our program um, instead of kind of growing just organically. So I have a question for the rabbi, if, if I, you know, uh, spousal privilege. So rabbi, what's the connection between Moses and Ruth? Uh, since we're counting the Omer now. That's anyway. true, we are. Um, first, I want to say Richard Dale is desperately trying to get on. <laughs> Someone said, link. is Yael here? Maybe she is. I'm going to try and send a link to uh, Richard right now. Um, Excellent. Uh, Yossi, you carry on asking the rabbi a question. Okay, yeah, so. So, yeah, so, well, you know, for example, um, we have a poster that uh, we put up at uh, Purim, Passover, and Shavuot, um, highlighting a different one of these characters. For example, for Purim, uh, it's um, uh, actually a picture of a, a queen of a deck of cards, and it says, uh, Queen Esther, like Moses and Ruth, are heroes of the Jewish people. Well, what else do these three heroes have in common? And the answer is that they're all adopted. So in addition to creating this support system, we're also creating Jewish, uh, materials for synagogues that reflect foster care and adoption in the culture of the place so that when kids are coming home, they and their families can see themselves reflected in what it means to be Jewish so that they have an organic rooted place that they're part of the roots of the Yitzchayim, right, and not grafted onto it. I want to notice also that one of the things that you just said that I think applies even more broadly and, and, and not just to do with second nurture, which is that we all of us 
even those of us who are idealistic or involved in nonprofits, like leaving aside private sector issues, are often like going like crazy, right? Whether it's for the pursuit of profit or as it were the pursuit of good. And this notion of saying, oh, part of what we're doing is slowing down and we're doing some planning stuff that we didn't have time for before. And now we're doing that. That feels to me like a really interesting lesson of this thing. Like I'm totally feeling that Hazan. Like the first three or four weeks was absolute craziness because Isabella Friedman couldn't open and what did we do and all kinds of stuff. And we still have a series of short-term issues, but now I can feel that we are trying to slow down and go into some of those deeper issues. And actually that's good for us all. And my question to all of us, Yassi, even before you tell us a bit about Gigawatt, but I'm really interested, like how you might be the wrong person for me to be asking this to, right? But like, what is it? Do you feel like you're slowing down a bit at the moment and planning more or just the calendar not allow that? Say a little bit about that. So, uh, well, not going into the office. Uh, and uh, I miss the camaraderie and the spontaneity uh, of that. But on the other hand, you can start, it, it's almost like a sabbatical, right? We're, we're all, we all have our little, our little not, not Shemitah, but uh, weeks and months of Shemitah where I think we're given the opportunity to do some more thinking. Um, and so I was able to do some writing uh, and planting seeds for next ventures. Um, and it, I, I think it'll be good for just a little while longer because I, I feel like I, I want to get back to the, to, to the Ikara of things and, and to be back with like our team, uh, not, ju not just virtually. Um, it, it's, you know, Holy Week now for Christians. So it was nice on Friday to call our African partners uh, who are Christian and, um, uh, and touch base with them. And, and I think everybody feels there, there is somewhat this difference. And, you know, we also have partners who are Muslim and Ramadan is also upon us. So th there's this kind of this energy in the universe that says, take notice, things are different. They're also filled with potential. Um, and what, what I was afraid of is, you know, we keep saying, okay, maybe one more week, one more week. If it goes on for four months, I would have known in advance it was going to be four months. I would have, I, telling Susan, written a book, then a couple other things. So I'm now trying to make believe that it's going to go for a bit and do a couple longer term thinking projects um, that in the rush of the day to day, I, I don't normally get that chance. So first of all, I hope for all of us that you get to write that book because we will enjoy it. You wrote a very strong op-ed in the Jerusalem Post about silver linings from the coronavirus. Say a couple of sentences about the work that you've been doing in Africa and why you've been doing it. And then say, tell us a little bit about the argument within that op-ed. So, um, you know, when I when we made the jump from Newton, Massachusetts, a lot of Newton people, uh, to Kibbutz Ketura, uh, a number of people, especially Nigel Savage, uh, encouraged the solar dreams. Um, and uh, so with partners at Kibbutz Ketura in New Jersey with uh, David and Ed, we're able to form the first solar energy company in Israel. Um, with, a, with, a, with a crazy idea, not just to bring solar energy, but to get the whole south of Israel to go 100% solar daytime by 2020. 
which was one of those ludicrous, quixotic, impossible dreams. Um, the lecture company said, maybe you can do 10, 20%. Um, and uh, we're, we're on the verge of being 100% daytime solar now in 2020, and we'll get there. Uh, and when we're building that first field, people started coming mostly from Africa and said, hey, Startup Nation, can you help us? Uh, and we set up a sister company. It's a, it is a for-profit, it's a social business. It's an impact investment platform. And we wondering if we could adapt the model from Israel and bring it to sub-Saharan Africa. No one had ever done that before. And uh, thankfully we were able to do that supplying 6% of Rwanda's power. And um, now we're in 10 different countries. And um, we're currently building in Burundi, one of the poorest, poorest countries on the planet that is also not doing any preventative actions on Corona. Um, and uh, so we, we've come to learn and love Sub-Saharan Africa, and we feel like it's an expression of our collective Jewish values and Israeli know-how, um, but it's also made us sensitive to what, you know, what's really happening for the, the bottom billion people uh, on the planet and what's needed. Um, Israel could be a superpower of goodness in sub-Saharan Africa. They need water, they need food, they need clean, affordable power. We're really world-class uh, as a country and as companies, uh, impact companies. Um, and so this notion of how does the world get to win the climate battle has been an open book and, and there, without a clear pathway. Um, I was on the Israeli negotiating team uh, at Paris, and what we, on the one hand, we said in the RFI, if we can get it to go 100% solar daytime, that could be the model for Israel, and Israel can be a model for the world. Truth is, we're out of time. Uh, we're, we're totally out of time, and we were all going to go into the next climate conference in uh, Glasgow uh, with, a, with a failed hand. Um, it, it, the world was not rising up to the challenge. So I think one of the silver linings out of this pandemic is that we now know, we actually know that we can beat climate change. Before, before Corona, we never had an instance where the whole world was able to respond in every, basically almost every country in, in dramatic ways that were gonna be very painful politically and painful financially because there was a, feeling of a real threat, right? Well, climate change works, the effects of it work slower, but you know what? Because of climate change, a lot of the diseases out there are gonna spread. Uh, and, and I think now when environmentalists and climate activists start using the health card, you know, 400,000 kids in Africa dying just of malaria every year and nobody cares, right? And that's going to grow and it's going to spread to Europe. Oh, then all of a sudden the world is going to wake up. So now we have precedent. We have proof positive that big decisions can't be made in real time that cost trillions of dollars and yet are the right thing for the planet. Look, it's really many people have made the analogy that we're living in one of those dyspeptic, um, dystopian sci-fi disaster movies that we've you know all of us seen at some point on sort of like late night tv but one of the things that's interesting about what you just said and it goes to one of the parts of, of one of the lessons here is that you know it, it, 
in a different kind of way, it goes back to the famous line attributed to Larry Summers that nobody ever washed a rental car, which I think is a sort of deep terror because what he was saying yeah. that is he's saying, like, if this thing is mine, I relate to it in one way. And if it's not mine, no, it's partly, I don't care so much. And the key sentence in what you just said now is, if this happens in Europe, like, mm -hmm. because part of what happened here is we suddenly had a virus that wasn't just affecting people in the poorest third of the world. It was affecting London and New York and Northern yeah. and everybody. And so suddenly all of the world's governments were like, suddenly trillions of dollars were unlocked in yeah. really five minutes, which if we'd unlocked that over the preceding 10 years and spent it on epidemiology and public health and strengthening our health systems, we might still have had a virus, but the impact would have been immeasurably less. Yeah. And the question in relationship to the climate crisis is, is this more like a virus or not? And how do we build a psychological bridge even for people to understand it, right? That, that not only is this a precursor of a subsequent pandemic that could be worse and a virus that could be worse. So for sure coming out of this, I mean, I can't imagine that coming out of this, we won't, governments won't invest in public health and that people won't see this as something that's actually important as opposed to what is this vague thing that we're spending money on. But I think I would say to the two of you, because you are both, like deeply empathetic and also smart. What's the what's the change that we need to make? Clearly, this is an open question. We none of us know, but what is the what is the bridge that we need to build in relationship, for example, to climate crisis for people to understand, yeah. right, that this is coming down the pipe for all of us? Yeah. Yeah. That's the gazillion dollar question. I think if I had the answer to that, I would be selling it to you. Wait, do I get a million dollars if I answer it? Okay, this, no, this, this is going to be an equity raise. This is our gazillion dollar round for Gigawatt Global for you impact investors. All right, a, a couple ideas, just because it's all yeah. fresh and these are the right questions. Look, I think Zika was a hint of what was going to come because it was affecting America. And the, the northern migration of the mosquitoes carrying it is because of climate change. But no one really thought in, about pandemics. Like it, it, there was some panic, particularly in Florida, right? But no one, no one actually had a worst case scenario in mind. And, and so I think we're going to all have a, a, a trigger, like a much, like people are going to go, oh my God, is it going to lead to? There's going to, that, that change is already, I, th I think the shock is there, and I think the trauma is there. Uh, we have a, a million people who filed for unemployment in Israel, and Israel didn't really care much about climate. We're always worried about war and peace, right? And so now, uh, and the health care system was ignored. So I think there's always going to be this imminent fear that, oh my God, this can lead to X or Y. So those pandemics that can be fueled by uh, climate change, now people are going to take note and, and, and have some sort of relationship. But look, when the Western ice shelf of Antarctica blops, you know, into the ocean and sea levels rise, you know, one to three meters, it will also affect so many people. And it's not going to be like over decades, which is how we usually see things. And so I think when the climate community puts forward worst case scenarios, people are going to 
take notice, but we have to learn to speak in economic terms. What's gonna be the loss to an economy if these things happen? And of course, we have to start quantifying the human, the, 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 the fatalities in the healthcare if we don't take preventive actions. And the fact that many world leaders, including in the UK and the US, downplayed something, they were essentially virus deniers, right? And then when the market lost $7 trillion virtually overnight, they changed their position, right? So we have to be able to, to be able to realize that you can take a climate denier and turn them into resp more responsible leaders by being able to push the right buttons when it comes to economic threat and human life threat and their own legacy. Right, although I also, how to do this, I have no idea, but depoliticizing all of these things because it's insane watching both of our governments politicizing this crisis. It's terrifying because all that matters isn't like, oh, we'll be afraid down the line, there'll be a recession down. They don't care because someone else will be president then, right? Yeah, and I, I wanna, just before I say one other thing, I, I wanna say to anybody right now who's on Zoom Live or on Facebook, um, in a minute, I'm gonna open it up for questions. Even though I don't exactly know how this is gonna work, I'm in the Zoom group chat, so if you have a question, uh, uh, for Yossi and Rabbi Susan, you can you can put it in there and I'll see it. And if it comes from Facebook, I think I'll ask Leanna for you to put it in the Zoom chat. Um, I, I was going to say, just joining up the dots also in something that, 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 that you each in different ways have been involved in. Um, one of the issues that, that I think you guys were involved in was the whole issue of refugees in Israel. Um, and it's very striking that although one can't do, draw a direct causal link, one can't say that, that, that the climate crisis caused drought in Syria. Nevertheless, there were two or three years of drought in Syria. Lo and behold, in the aftermath of that, there was civil unrest, which became a civil war, which displaced five million people. And lo and behold, as they then spread into Europe, that started to politically destabilize Europe and partially provoked a populist backlash. And the refugees in South Tel Aviv are a tiny, literally statistically a tiny proportion of what does Jordan do with its refugees and how does that um, affect the stability of Jordan? And if Jordan becomes destabilized, that'll certainly affect Israel and what happens in Turkey and Greece and how does that all of that play out? And in a in a strange way, again, it's like the thing that's truly awful about the Syrian, Syrian civil war is five million people losing their homes and a whole bunch of people losing their lives. But from almost a selfish Western perspective, right, this is a place where people could conceivably say, certainly the governments in Europe could actually say, oh, wow, this has caused so many problems in Europe. Maybe we need to go upstream and, and figure out uh, what this is. Let's let's try and move it forward a little bit positively. I want to I want to ask this partly at like the governmental level, but also partly at the like personal or Jewish organizational level, right? If you were Russia Memshala, right? I hope at some point one of you will be Russia Memshala. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but if you were Russia Memshala or President of the United States, and there were just one or two changes that you could make, what what would they be? So, um, 
I don't think either of us are qualified for either of those jobs. Mm -hmm. However, in Israel, is the um, the present is a symbolic post, but it's a good bully pulpit. Um, uh, keep, I'm keeping my eyes uh, open on that. But I really, we're, we're prepared already. I'm working with the Heschel Center on a government decision for 2030, uh, that between now and then, that the state of Israel will go 100% daytime solar. Um, and uh, I think we can take the leadership role on that. We can undercut uh, the gas company prices that are bilking uh, the country. Um, and uh, there may be an opportunity because of also Corona um, on, on, on all of this. So I would definitely want Israel to, um, as a sort of a public face of our collective good values, to do the right thing and to be a model society when it comes to this. We've proven it in the Arava with, um, at the 100% level. And now we want to, I, I would like to take that nationally and we'll do it from what, whether it's outside the president's office or inside the president's office, it's, uh, uh, we're going to make it happen. In the U.S., what do you want to do? In the U.S., what do I want to do? I do want to say in terms of asylum seekers in Israel that um, what happened, one of the pieces that happened, that the piece that I was involved with was asking Israelis to open their homes and hide asylum seekers. And just kind of threw that out there in the world and it got some attention and 2000 Israeli households within two weeks signed up to hide people. Now that is when you can get like, that was, it was crazy. It was just like kind of throwing it out there and then all of these people rising up. And I feel like that's a model for so many things, like in terms of, certainly in terms of asylum seekers and refugees, that if we can be, they take this big problem and, and, and make it look like there were 90 locations around Israel where people had signed up to do this that's manageable, right? If people open their homes, their neighborhoods, their communities, whether it's to kids who are outside family care or to people who are, who are through no fault of their own, like without a place to put their bodies, right? A legal place to put their bodies mm -hmm. and their families' bodies. What if we just, on a local level, start to open up our communities and our holds? And that's happening in so many ways all around the world, but certainly in the US, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. uh, highest is just one of many amazing wonderful terrific examples uh, somebody of, told me yeah somebody somebody told me yesterday and i haven't looked this up online but clearly one of the things that has been um tragically made a lot worse by what's going on is domestic violence uh, and somebody told me that airbnb have partnered with some organization and that they're opening a series of airbnbs for people who are suffering domestic violence and right now literally have no other place to go to and I, I thought that was a really a tragic in one sense, but 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 deeply hopeful and <laughs> wow, go talk way of sugar, I think way of bringing these people way of bring these way of way of way of taking things that have been developed in the last few years and suddenly saying, Oh, we have a resource here that we could start to apply in a different way. Yossi, what you were saying about 2030, I shouldn't do this live on a Zoom call or a Facebook call. But in fact, I've been noodling with a couple of friends recently, you know, to, to what would it be to launch a public conversation around a new thing, which, which could be a tnua, it could be an organization, it could be a miflaga, right, called Briotu Bitachon, right, health and security. What would it be to have in, in Israel a thing called Briotu Bitachon to start a public conversation about what kind could should Israel look like in 2030 coming out of this? 
What would it be to say, let's spend 2% of GMP every year for the next 10 years fixing the healthcare system? What would it be to say that by 2030, Israel should have the lowest net carbon output of any Western developed nation? And what would it be over 10 years to try and figure out public transport in Israel so that all the transportation works for all of Israel's citizens? And And I feel like in Israel, Briyut and healthcare has been over here. And as we know, Bitachan security is over there. And one of the, I think, underpinning uh, threads of this conversation has been this notion, it it underpins the climate conversation as well, that that health and security are not just two issues, they're separate ones. In the United States, despite political denial in parts of the spectrum, the Pentagon has been taking climate change seriously because the Pentagon is tasked with securing America from potential future future threats. And it understands that there are real threats here. Yeah, uh, look, it's a definitely welcome conversation, but what we've learned through this pandemic is something that the climate community has known, which is the the interconnectedness of, of this one planet, this one world, and that, you know, if you, if you have factories in, in China spewing out this stuff, that it, it's going to lead to extinction, uh, extinction of um, uh, species in the Amazon, etc. So it, wh- whatever action it is, it needs to be global. And so now that Glasgow is postponed into 2021, the, the UN conference, I think we need, we need to push for a, a global carbon tax, for example. And it'd be nice if Israel was one of the first countries to adopt it, but everything now has to go global on this. Um, and look, it's a little country here and, and we can be an incubator for ideas and for testing things out, um, but everything now has to be global. And I, and I think that's one of the lessons of Corona. Thank you. So I think I want to start to bring this into land, and I, I want to bring it down now from the political to the personal. I'm very aware that we're on the journey from Pesach to Shavuot, which I love, this period of counting the Omer, and it plays at lots of different levels. But in a sense, Pesach is freedom from, freedom from one, freedom from oppression, freedom from the COVID virus. And in a sort of Maslowian pyramid kind of a way, those are basic freedoms that we need in order then to live richer lives. But we, we go on this 49-day journey with no rules, or at least different rules, right? With less chametz, with less superfluous stuff. And it's this period of reflecting and learning in the wilderness and learning also that radical freedom doesn't totally work for us, but not everything that we can do should we do. And then we end up at Shavuot, which is freedom to, freedom to say not everything can I do, should I do. And, I, and so my question for both of you is, as we are now, at Shavuot, looking back over the seven-week period or the 11-week period going back to Purim, or a year from now looking back, what are one or two things that were in your life before all of this that you want to let go of, that you have let go of, that you were forced to let go of, that you want to stay a little bit less than it was previously? And what are one or two things that you have learned or gained in this period that is quote-unquote normal life comes back to life that you want to that you want to keep in your lives that you want other people to have so uh, i've always been like someone who can like get super anxious i mean zoloft god bless zoloft like it's made a big difference for the past whatever 
however many years? Decades. 20. <laughs> um, but still, like, I think, like, many of us, like, have um, in, increased anxiety in this time, right? There's this, like, the Band-Aid has been ripped off this, the, um, the facade of, of security, right? Or of, like, knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. And, um, and I think, like, just trying to breathe, not be overcome with anxiety, to know that when, you know, you hear on NPR talks about people talking about like how to manage your anxiety, that's real, that other people share it with you, that we're together in this, that it's not like, actually, I'm really the only one who's super anxious because I'm the one who has this or that, you know, that we really are in this together and that we really can like, um, by being like honest about our, our experiences, maybe like help each other kind of rise up a little bit. Um, and also this idea that, um, you know, deadlines, you know, we're living less with extreme deadlines, right, I think, than we used to be. And I didn't realize this until my Torah study this morning that Shavuot is the only holiday in the Torah that doesn't have a date attached to it, which is sort of ironic because we actually Davka count, right, to Shavuot from Pesach. And so this idea of like that we're counting awesome. towards something really meaningful, awesome. towards something really meaningful, but at the same time, really not being able to pinpoint exactly when or what that is, I think is really profound that, you know, ultimately, like we, we, we set our goals and we move forward, but we, um, we can only take the step at a time with this sort of um, faith you know, as, as the Sinai of faith, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, a year from now, on, on the work front, what I feel is just a greater sense of urgency is like, come on, come on, come on. I'm telling all my people, let's, let's actually, when everyone is afraid to do more, and everyone's retreating, we should Dafka go in more courageously, more strategically, push harder and try to get these solar fields up faster. Like really to, to put, so, I, so I'm feeling that now and hopefully in a year we'll, I don't know, be a public company and it would be in more countries and be able to really have fruits on the ground because obviously there's a connection between public health and energy access. Um, and so maybe we'll be able to create that wave and ride that wave a bit, um, which will lift up a lot of human dignity for millions of people. On the personal level, um, so it's not just that I planted a, you know, a vegetable garden, but we are in Jerusalem and, and trying to have some sense of hope for the future. I, I did the messianic um, uh, agriculture. I, so I, I, we have three grapevines now and, uh, and a fig tree. And, 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 and it's just, just the simplicity of putting your hands in the soil and watering it like twice a day and caring for it. And um, Susan always works inside from home and I'm home, which is a problem. So I, I've taken the porch as my, as my area. And I have to say, I'm loving it. I'm loving being with vegetable garden, but especially the, uh, the messianic uh, planting of the uh, grape and the, and the fig tree. Thank you. I want to say, sorry, go on, Susan. I was just going to say, I think we should all sign some sort of document saying that in quarantine, no humming is allowed. Oh, no. <laughs> no humming. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there are a series of those things. I want to say, first of all, you know, um, modern Israel began with this notion of chalutzia, of people becoming pioneers and reclaiming the land. And it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of the Torah. 
it came out of the fact that we entered human history as an indigenous people with a relationship to land in the land of Israel. And there's something very lovely that you are both Chalutzim uh, of this generation. You're both pioneers in multiple different ways. There is something very, very lovely about going full circle and you actually literally planting grapevines and figs uh, on your on your balcony because it, it really does take it full circle in so many ways. Um, I'll say just the last couple of things from me uh, ahead of thanking you and everybody. Um, one is, um, like everybody else, I've had my own, you know, Jewish journey. But in general, there was a long period of my life I was strictly Shammah Shabbat. I didn't do all sorts of things on Shabbat, and that was great. I was happy. Gradually, in the last few years, I became less observant. But in general, I didn't use my phone on Shabbat. And as of three weeks ago, after three brutal weeks of Zoom meetings and craziness, I was like, the heck with this. And we live right on Central Park here in New York. And I'm like, I'm just going to walk around Central Park and phone old friends. And I and I and it's become my new Shabbat minhag. And I'm not encouraging anybody who keeps Shabbat to break it. In general, we need to protect ourselves from our electronica. But as a kid, when I was a teenager, I spent all my time on the phone to friends chatting with them. And somehow or other, in the course of my adult life, I lost the notion that a phone could be an instrument of chatting in that way. And uh, I feel as though, at least for now, that's that's part of my new minhag. And that one of the things that's nice about this is I think all over the place, people are reaching out and connecting in new ways and connecting to old friends. And I hope that without tragedy, we find ways to continue that. And the second thing I wanna to say to everybody is that I love counting the Omer. And people, I think, mistakenly think you have to do it right from the start. You have to do it with the bracha, with the blessing. It doesn't matter whether you started or not. It's an amazing journey. And one of the things that I'm doing this year is journaling. And I really encourage you and everybody to just journal every day from now till Shavuot in this very liminal period about what it is we're learning, what we want to be doing more of, what we want to be doing less of, because that's ultimately how we, how we go from the personal to changing the world. This year, the period of the Omer is going to be very fascinating. Um, um, Lagba Omer, a bigger deal in general in Israel than in Chutzlar, it's outside of Israel is bonfires and hameron and barbecues. But people forget that Lagba Omer is because there was a plague. And the plague had killed all of these people. And Lagba Omer was when the plague had started to abate. And I think it's gonna be part of the timing this year. And I think for all of us to think about how we wanna observe Lagba Omer this year, I think it's gonna be interesting. Yeah. And lastly, April 22nd is the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. We were originally going to have 50 rabbis and environmental leaders blowing shofar in Times Square. It's not clear that you're going to be able to have 50 people in Times Square. But what we're saying to everybody is at noon in New York, which will be 7 o'clock in Israel, 5 o'clock in England, 10 in the morning on the West Coast, we're inviting everybody who has a shofar to go outside and sound the call and blow a shofar. And if you don't have a shofar, blow a trumpet, bang a drum. Because, because you blow shofar to remind us that everything we have is from the natural world. You blow it at a time of celebration, and Earth Day is celebrating planet Earth. You blow it at a time of alarm, and this year it's a time of alarm. And most of all, you blow it as a call to tshuva, to changing our ways. And so I, I thank you so much for joining me in this first conversation after the plague. And I wanna bless you and me and all of us that we're healthy, that we stay healthy, 
and that we gradually come out of this being better people, better mm -hmm. communities, better organizations, better countries, and a better world. Halal is going to kill us, so we're going to say you can follow Susan at Rabbah <laughs> Susan on Twitter, and I'm Captain Sunshine with a K. Halal's our social media. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Bye bye. bye. Lots of love yeah. to everybody. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Bye. Bye. Bye.